This is Ergasia Digest, a weekly roundup of news from the world of faith, work, economics and theology, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Ergasia Digest number 7, a regular roundup of news from the world of work, faith, theology and economics. My name is Brendan Byrne and I have the pleasure of being your host. Ergasia Digest acts as a supplement to regular episodes of Ergasia by highlighting news about work and economics and posing questions that tie these news items to considerations of faith and theology. It will not necessarily be the purpose of Ergasia Digest to suggest or supply answers to the questions which then arise, merely to provide food for thought for listeners' own reflection. And so here is the news. Beginning in Korea and BBC Capital reports that Korean-based artist Ryan Estrada has taken action against the pervasive trend within the creative industries for artists to be asked to work for free. While Estrada says he is happy to work gratis for family and personal friends, being an artist is his livelihood. Those who want to utilise his talents for commercial purposes need to understand their obligation to pay appropriate remuneration in order to ensure he is properly compensated for his time and labour. Fed up with requests for free work, Estrada has established a Twitter account for exposure.txt and invited artists to submit accounts of their own experiences of being asked to work for free. Estrada has been inundated with responses and now has over 160,000 followers on Twitter. Examples include the requirement that artists have alternative sources of income because advertised projects are non-paying, as well as admonitions that artists should work for love and not money, and should quit if they want to make an income from their art. Estrada says that a large part of the problem is that being an artist is viewed as a hobby, rather than as real work, and that hobbyists ought accordingly not be paid as though it involved some kind of labour. This in turn reinforces the notion that it is acceptable to offer artists exposure rather than remuneration. Estrada says that the ultimate purpose of his Twitter account is educative, to teach artists to recognise when they are being exploited and to teach clients to respect artists and their work. Stepping across to Japan, and the Japan Times declares in an op-ed piece that the country may have to face up to the fact that it has lost the war for the middle class as the economic miracle of the 60s and 70s recedes into history, making its promises for anyone born after 1973 not only impossible to achieve, but rendering those generations effectively lost to any hope of prosperity and security. For these generations, the idea of the free labourer, 
who broke the shackles of the oppressive salaryman mould and exchanged a better quality of life for a lower overall income, has morphed into a permanent state of non-voluntary casualization, underemployment, insecurity and poverty. The consequences for Japanese society, and by extension all industrialized economies, are stark. Fewer people are marrying simply as a matter of economic necessity, and when they do marry, they are marrying later and having fewer children. The outcome of this trend is a rapidly aging society. According to Japan's National Institute of Population and Social Security Research, by 2045 more than 21% of Japan's citizens will be aged over 75 years. This in turn will hasten the depopulation of rural areas which have access to fewer resources, with Tokyo and other major urban centres literally sucking the life out of surrounding regions. The looming crisis is hidden by apparently positive economic news. While jobs are up and unemployment is down, most modern employment is dominated by low-paid, casualised, insecure work, of which the so-called gig economy and its imitators are the prime example. This results in falling tax receipts, exacerbated by the increasing clamour for cuts to corporate tax rates at just the historical moment when the burden on social welfare is rapidly increasing. Unable to save or access meaningful superannuation, future generations of retirees dependent on welfare face an almost dystopian scenario of poverty, abandoned or crumbling social infrastructure and permanent assignment to a swelling underclass cut off from the benefits enjoyed by a privileged few. Staying in Japan and the Japan Times also reports on the difficulties which present-day workers are confronted with when they try and access legally mandated employment rights. Under Japanese law, parents are entitled to take up to a year's parental leave together at two-thirds pay for the first six months and half pay for the remaining six months. To be eligible for this leave, the employee must have worked with their employer for at least a year and reasonably expect to be employed in a year's time. However, Despite the fact that these entitlements are written into law, both men and women in the Japanese workforce experience various forms of harassment designed to prevent them from accessing parental leave, including physical and psychological harassment, non-renewal of contracts, dismissal and other forms of discriminatory behaviour, all of which are specifically outlawed by at least three different pieces of national legislation. Two cases currently before Japanese courts highlight the difficulties faced by employees seeking to access parental leave. In both cases, the employee in question, the father, had initially been denied permission by their employers to take time off so that they could be with their partners during and for a period after the birth of their child. In both cases, the partner experienced severe birth difficulties. One child had to be delivered by emergency C-section, while the second child was so premature, doctors believed it would not live. 
and while the leave was eventually granted, in one case the employee's contract was not renewed, while the other was demoted and subject to workplace bullying. According to the union representing one of the workers in the present cases, there has only been one previous court ruling on the matter of parental leave harassment, which found that a nurse had been improperly denied access to their rights under law. The union says, however, that the fact of this sole ruling points to how hard it is for employees to access justice and how little reported the matter of parental leave harassment is in Japan. Moving to Australia, and the Age newspaper reports that unions will step up a campaign ahead of the Victorian state election to make wage theft a criminal offence punishable by imprisonment. The move comes as part of a growing push across Australia to make the deliberate under or non-payment of wages a criminal offence in the wake of a series of scandals in which some of Australia's largest companies have been exposed as participants in widespread and systemic wages fraud. It also comes in the wake of reports by the Fair Work Ombudsman that at least half of all restaurant, catering, cafe and fast food businesses surveyed by the Ombudsman had at least one infringement for underpayment of wages. According to the Age report, Senior members of the Victorian government have ruled out any wage theft legislation ahead of the forthcoming election, but have left open the possibility of it being put before the electorate as a policy option. The report also cites Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry Chief Executive James Pearson opposing the introduction of wage theft laws. According to Pearson, Australian employers already face significant financial penalties for underpaying wages. The report also cited Federal ALP Industrial Relations spokesperson Brendan O'Connor, who said the Federal ALP opposed making underpayment of wages a criminal offence, but would significantly increase civil penalties. Finally, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation reports that the former chairman of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, Alan Fells, has rebuked both the financial industry and the corporate regulator, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, in the wake of revelations at the Financial Services Royal Commission of systemic and deliberate wrongdoing within the finance industry. Fells said that the banks and other financial institutions were clearly operating on the basis of an entrenched conflict of interest inasmuch as they were producing financial products that were then being sold to the public by allegedly independent financial advisers who were in fact working for their own and the industry's benefit and not the well-being of consumers. Fells also criticised ASIC for possibly being too close to the players in the finance industry and for settling for administrative penalties against wrongdoers instead of taking them to court and seeking appropriate sanctions. Fell's criticism comes as the government of Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull faces increasing criticism for having delayed the initiation of the Royal Commission, especially given the apparent speed and alacrity with which it had launched an earlier commission of inquiry into corruption within the union movement, 
Turnbull has admitted that it was a political mistake to have not inaugurated the Financial Services Royal Commission at a much earlier stage, despite his claim that he called out the financial sector in a speech two years ago for its bad behaviour, and also despite persistent calls from some government backbenchers for an inquiry into banks and other financial institutions. Turnbull's admission comes despite Federal Financial Services Minister Callie O'Dwyer's refusal in an interview on ABC TV to admit that the inquiry should have been called earlier. The Royal Commission has heard evidence of a litany of corrupt and criminal behaviour within the finance industry, including allegations of bribery, fraudulent conduct in relation to housing and car loans, systemic violations of lending obligations in relation to credit cards, failure to repay interest over payments, admissions of the non-disclosure of misconduct to regulatory bodies, the charging of fees for products that were never delivered, the charging of fees for for financial advice that was never given, and the charging of tens of thousands of dollars in fees for poor financial advice that resulted in adverse outcomes for clients. The Royal Commission, which held its first hearings in February 2018, is ongoing. What theological questions arise from this roundup of news from the world of work and economy? Both the law-giving and prophetic traditions of the Hebrew Scriptures speak out against the existence of partiality in the administration of justice, of the need for justice to not occur on the basis of the relative economic standing and social influence of the different members of society. Justice is not a matter of who can exert the most influence or who can access the better legal resources. Rather, it is a reflection of the relationship between the members of society and a mechanism for ensuring the maintenance of the covenantal nature of that relationship, a relationship that is meant to reflect the covenant between God and humankind. In other words, justice is not a matter of the assertion of rights and privileges, it is the assurance of the maintenance of right relationship between individuals in which the intrinsic dignity of all persons is not merely respected, but actually upheld. In Deuteronomy 16 verses 19 to 20, the text declares, You must not distort justice. You must not show partiality. You must not accept bribes. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, so that you may live in the, and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Likewise, Second Chronicles 19 verse 7 proclaims, There is no perversion of justice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking of bribes. Clearly, these texts declare that partiality is a distortion of justice, that is to say a corruption of the covenantal relationship that ought to exist between individuals as well as of the relationship between God and humanity. Any execution of justice that bases itself upon sectional or parochial interests 
rather than upon the dignity and intrinsic worth of the human person, corrupts social relations, reducing justice to a plaything of the powerful and the self-interested. This is likewise reflected in the prophetic tradition in its critiques of corruption and the abuses of power. For example, in the text attributed to the prophet Malachi, at chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, it declares, But you have turned aside from the way. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, inasmuch as you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in your instruction. Again, that word partiality crops up, which is not about mere favoritism or preferential treatment, but about the corruption of human relationships, so that the execution of justice in effect describes a segregated reality, one in which the self-interest of the powerful and the influential tramples the inherent dignity of all others. This is the segregated reality of one law for the few and another law for the many, in which the theoretical equality of all persons before the law disguises the corrupt distortion of the relational coexistence to which that equality is meant to give expression. So the questions which arise from our survey of the news from the world of work and economics are, what partiality, that is to say what distortions and corruptions in social relations, are evidenced by the fact that employees cannot even access, or can only access with extreme difficulty, the rights and entitlements which are nominally enshrined in law. What partiality is on display when employers can systematically and repeatedly escape the consequences of defrauding and shortchanging those whom they are meant to be fairly remunerating for their labour? What is being said about our attitudes toward human dignity and the dignity of human labour when artists are repeatedly subject to the demand that they provide creative output for no pay? What agendas are being served when those who hold political power are prepared to bring the weight of judicial inquiry against one section of the economy, but not against another section? What does it say about our attitude to relationships, not just between but across generations, when those born into the promise of one generation not only have that promise snatched away from them, but are left to contemplate a bleak and demeaning future. With those questions to ponder, we come to the end of Ergasia Digest number 7. I hope to have the pleasure of your company in future. For more information, visit the website at www.ergasia.podbean.com. I'm your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia Digest, a weekly roundup of news from the world of faith, work, economics and theology. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com. Thank you.